suckers. It's reading aloud. I'm Nate Cordry. I'm your host. We've had a week off, but now we're back for three episodes in a row this Friday, next Friday, and the following Friday, three in a row. Uh, the book club is next week. We are reading Richard Price's The Whites. Uh, it's a great, I'm almost finished with it now. We're doing the episode next week um, on Wednesday, the 25th. So if you have thoughts about the book, please email us, share your thoughts. I have like four or five people who email in every week who read the book, and I appreciate you guys. Uh, I want that number to expand. Tell your friends, read the book, jot down notes while you're reading the book, and then send us your thoughts, and we'll respond, and then we'll talk about your thoughts uh, on the air during the the book club. Uh, So be a part of the show. Um, You can send uh, all those thoughts into readingaloudpodcast at gmail.com. And I just started brainstorming on a live book club, which I'm going to try to do in May or June if we can find the space and negotiate how that can happen. Uh, I think it would be so much fun to have people read the book, give them a month, and then show up and have a panel who are talking about the book. But everyone there in the audience has also read the book, and we'll go into the audience, and you guys can share your thoughts about the book and what we liked, what we didn't like. I think that'd be a really fun live experience, a sort of secondary live experience to the live show um, that I've been doing every month at the Upright Citizens Brigade here on Franklin. Uh, which we have another one coming up. We have uh, a six-month run here. We're going to do the second Sunday of every month. So pencil that into your calendar if you live in Los Angeles. The second Sunday of every month at 7.30, we're doing Reading Aloud at the UCB. And this last show that we did, oh my God, it, I, it, it might have been the, the, the best show that we'd done. We had six readers, and it was electric, and people really brought it. And my dear friend, John Forrest, showed up 15 minutes before the show. Uh, One of my readers was sick, poor Molly, she got sick, uh, and she couldn't do the show. So John came on stage and read her piece cold, and it was great. He did a great job, but all the readers were fantastic. Mike Still, Megan Amram, Anna Faris, um, Nelson Franklin, Faye Wolf, uh, John Bowie. It was a really great night. And to start this podcast off, I wanted to play you Megan Amram's reading. Megan is a friend. You may follow her on Twitter. If you don't, um, pause this podcast, go to Twitter, and follow Megan Amram. Uh, She is a brilliant writer and comedian, and she wrote on Children's Hospital and Parks and Rec and a bunch of other things, and she just wrote a book called Science for Her, which came out this fall. And it's it's just hilarious. It is a just a brilliant satire, and she is phenomenal. And she was kind enough to come down to the UCB and read an excerpt from her book. She'd just done a big, enormous book tour all over the country, and uh, so she really knows what is the best piece to read out loud to get the audience going. And so this selection is just brilliant, and I'm so excited for you to listen to it. Uh, Megan is like a true creative genius, and uh, she is just wonderful. So um, here is Megan Amram live at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater. Megan Amram. Thank you. So I'm I'm reading an excerpt from the biology chapter called How to Build a Biological Clock Out of a Potato. (laughs) 
Literally every woman has a ticking time bomb within them that someday <laughs> will explode and tell you to have millions of babies like a disgusting spider striped with stretch marks laying a fetid egg sack. <laughs> this is called a biological clock. It might explode when you're 16 or it might explode when you're 41. Uh, old maid much? Didn't I tell you to leave? Get out. But it's going to happen. Did you ever make a potato clock in sixth grade? Well, in a variation on the traditional scientific experiment, here are the instructions to make a biological potato clock. Step one, buy two potatoes on your normal trip to the grocery store. Make sure to ask your husband or lover if he'd like potatoes as well. Since if he wants potatoes, you should make sure to get enough to make a clock and to give him his potatoes. <laughs> Yum. <laughs> Step two, also ask your man if he'd like any other groceries while you're there for the potatoes. There's a good chance he'd like something. Men are very hungry. <laughs> for example, they sometimes like pita bread. <laughs> Step three, get in your car. Make sure to adjust the side mirrors to your level if it's your husband or father's car. They are taller than us. <laughs> Remember to keep your eyes on the road and not to readjust your makeup in the mirrors as you drive. Women need to be extra vigilant while behind the wheel due to their inherent lack of spatial reasoning. <laughs> Plus, your makeup already looks great, girl. <laughs> Step four, pull over. You got lost on the way to the grocery store. Just ask a kindly gas station attendant or barkeep for directions. They'll be sure to help you if you give a little smile and show a little gam. Note, if you were assaulted by a gas station attendant, follow step five. If you were not, skip to step six. Step five, do not shower immediately, call 911. Step six, you're at the grocery store. Isn't this fun? Head to the potato section. Find two potatoes that are particularly large and starchy. If you aren't sure which potatoes to get, ask one of the greengrocers for help. He'll love the chance to be of service. <laughs> Note, if you are assaulted by a greengrocer, follow <laughs> step seven if you're not skipped to step eight. Step seven, do not shower. Immediately call 911 after you buy the potatoes that he recommends. He still knows his stuff after all. <laughs> step eight, buy the potatoes. Drive home carefully. Strap the potatoes into the passenger seat as a precaution, lest you get in an accident on the way home due to your poor spatial reasoning. <laughs> Don't become too attached, though. They are not your babies. They are potatoes. <laughs> Step nine. Have your husband or father or milkman Google how to make potato clock online. It involves nails, wires, etc. Very complicated. Step 10, make him make one for you. <laughs> Step 11, now's the part where you set the time. It's a little subjective. You're going to have to feel out deep within yourself when you think the all-encompassing urge to have children is going to take full control of your life and mind and body. One thing to look out for is that maybe it's already happened and the urge you're feeling within you is a six-month-old fetus. <laughs> 
once you've decided on a year and date and time for your biological clock, have your husband set the clock face that he put on your clock when he made it for you. <laughs> Note, if you're assaulted by your husband, follow step 12. If you're not, skip to step 13. Step 12, no worries. If it's your husband, it doesn't really count. <laughs> Feel free to shower. Step 13, congrats. You've made your biological potato clock. You go, girl. Thank you. Go out and get her book immediately. It's called Science for Her, and her name is Megan Amram. She is a brilliant writer and performer, and she just killed. Uh, she was just so good and so funny, and the audience just was eating out of the palm of her hand. It's, it was, it's really fun to watch someone read their own work. It's a completely different experience than watching someone read someone else's work because uh, they're so much more invested in their performance because it's them and their own voice. Uh, and Megan was wonderful. So Megan, thank you for coming down and reading from your book. Uh, we're gonna take a really, really quick break and we'll be right back with more Reading Aloud. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible.com is the place for audiobooks. There are over 150,000 titles to choose and from every category imaginable. Do you wanna read a book about tennis? That exists. What about a book about toilets? You can. What about George Washington? Maybe George Washington played tennis. If he did, I bet there's a book about it. So go to audiblepodcast.com backslash Nate and get a free 30-day trial and a free audiobook. Maybe it'll be about George Washington or maybe it'll be about toilets. Who knows? Uh, it's unlike a streaming or a rental service. With Audible, you own the books. So you download them and then they're yours forever. And there's free apps as well for iPhone, Android, Windows phone. So you can access your book anytime, whether you're at home in front of your computer, or if you're walking on the street on the bus, or maybe you're at the, you're on the tennis court playing some toilet tennis. And then you're like, no, I want to read about tennis now. You can. Super easy chapter navigation. And there's annotated bookmarks. It's a really easy way to get a book into your brain. Uh, like Lena Dunham's Not That Kind of Girl which is narrated by Lena Dunham. Uh, Tim Curry uh, narrates Bram Stro Stoker's Dracula, which sounds awesome. Uh, Go the Fuck to Sleep, Amy Poehler's Yes, Please, uh, Lock In, which is narrated by Will Wheaton, uh, Starship Troopers, Gone Girl, To Kill a Mockingbird. All of them are here. So go to audiblepodcast.com backslash Nate and find something for yourself. Free trial and a free book. So audiblepodcast.com backslash Nate, read about toilets. My guest this week is Ryan Knighton. He's an author, teacher, an essayist. He's written for Esquire, the New York Times, and The Believer. His books include Cockeyed, a memoir, and Come On Papa, Dispatches from a Dad in the Dark. I first found Ryan's work through the radio, through This American Life, where he negotiated a bear with his infant daughter and got lost in a hotel room. And then I found him again on the moth where he went rattlesnake hunting. And he's, he's really made me laugh every time I've heard them speak. So I wanted to invite him on the podcast. Ryan Knighton, welcome. Welcome hey. to Jurassic Park. Um, <laughs> welcome to Reading Aloud. You know what I like in, in that intro the most is you used the verb negotiate. He negotiated a bear. <laughs> yeah. 
As if like there you had to draw up documents and, <laughs> and ha- hand them back and forth. Uh, that story is so fucking funny. I it was one of those like NPR moments where you have to uh, pull your car over um, and just like hang out a driveway moment, as they've um, described them, where you don't get out of your car, <laughs> you sit in your driveway and listen because what's happening on the radio is really compelling. Um, That's the, the climactic focus group score for NPR is driveway hostage taking. That's exactly That's right. The category. Yep, yeah. and the ice cream from the from the grocery store is melting, and you don't give a fuck because it's really really good. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. How did you first Miley get? Miley Cyrus is somewhere twerking, and we don't care. Doesn't matter. Not important. No. Uh, when did you first hook up with um, like the folks at This American Life and, and Ira Glass? Uh, that came about because I had done a piece up here in Canada, um, for a radio show called Wiretap, which is hosted by a guy named Jonathan Gold. Oh yeah. Yeah. He's, he's great. Been a producer for years on this American life. And yeah. he has a show up here, which is great. It's just sort of him having phone conversations that you're ostensibly listening in on. And, um, we had done a piece, which was sort of a, um, the story of me taking my infant daughter on just a walk around my neighborhood for the first time. She was like, you know, three months old. And, you know, the premise being that I'm a blind guy and I'm strapping my baby onto myself like sweaty dynamite and just going to take her out and see what happens when I wander into traffic. And, and of course, my wife is like probably shadowing us 20 feet behind. And, and so it was sort of the epic journey of one block. And that, that was the piece. And then um, Ira heard it and, and uh, the show picked it up. Uh, and then... And then from there, they, they had this moment a few years ago where they were doing one of their live shows, which was going to be simulcast into theaters. And, and Ira um, had reached out to me and because they were doing a thing about the invisible made visible, like radio you could see on a movie screen. So uh, that seemed to lend itself to my blindo thematics. Right. And, um, <laughs> but it was amazing working with him. He's like the, the most interesting editor I've ever worked with because he didn't really know what he wanted, but he said, um, just send me some material to look at. So I sent him like 70 pages from the cutting room floor and uh, they were just bits and anecdotes and stuff. And, you know, he disappeared for three weeks and then he came back with an email one day, just said, I like these 12 beats. And he just had the spine. Whoa. And, uh, then we started working it out from there. And um, to my horror, what happened was we wrote out the piece and it was maybe about 15 pages and, and uh, but it had to clock in at seven and a half minutes because the show was being simulcast so that the feed would cut out at two hours. And if anybody went over time, oh no, you know, it, it was sort of like that. So he brought me out to New York about five days before the show to do this monologue in comedy clubs twice a night and edit it from there. So it was really interesting because he would have somebody record it and he wanted to hear where the audience was reacting. And then based on that, he would give me edits. Wow. Um, yeah. And it was fascinating. And it was weird for me because I've never done comedy in clubs. <clears throat> I mean, I've done sort of the, the, the moth storytelling thing, but yeah. uh, it, you know, it's weird because you go into a comedy club and people expect a kind of potato chip delivery speed of joke. And then when you get into a story, people get a little bit sweaty, right? A little, a little, where is this going? Why, why am I feeling things? Right. Um, so it was excruciating. I'm assuming um, the audiences. Yeah. The audiences for like, for storytelling shows like the moth understand that this is a low, slow burn and there will be payoff, but it requires a little more effort and patience where the average person who's at least two drinks in at a comedy club wants joke, 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 
joke. Was that, did you feel that like immediately? Did you have that sense like, oh. Oh, yeah. Oh, this is horrible. <laughs> oh, I, man. I, I think the reason I got away with it is because I'm a blind guy. And it's like, who's going to heckle the blind guy, right? Right, so sure. I think I, I, I sort of... I disabused, you know, my, my disability to get out of there. But, you know, I burned through it a couple of times where I could feel myself wanting to crack more jokes and filling in stuff just to, to feed them. And, and yeah. you know, it just failed miserably. I'm not a comedian. And, and uh, I think it was good, though. It was good to fail before I did the live show. It was good just to, like, crap it right out. What, what did you, what, um, when you got the final uh, piece that Ira had edited, what from, the, from your stand-up shows remained and what didn't do you remember little nuggets that stayed and you're like oh okay that's gone now now we learned that that won't work in this format um i think it was i think the ending may have gone a bit longer i don't exactly remember anymore yeah um, because we shaved it down so many times but you know i was amazing because like when we would do this we did so much of it over the phone even though i was in new york and he he's the kind of guy where i'd say well, if we drop that line, we probably get about five seconds or 10 seconds out of it. He's like, no, 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 no. That's like 1.2 seconds. I mean, the guy has just like wow. a living sensibility of time passing because he deals in radio. He knows exactly the rhythm of real time. And he can actually listen to audio tape on fast forward and rewind. What? Um, he's so tuned to it over the years. Yeah, it's just crazy. But um, he's an amazing editor, just like a completely amazing editor to work with. My, uh, I, I had uh, John Moe on the show a couple weeks ago, and he hosts, uh, he's the host of Wits, um, mm -hmm. which is a really funny comedy show um, on NPR that's out, out of uh, Minneapolis. And he was saying how, you know, before This American Life, Ira Glass was sort of a star journalist at NPR. Um, and he had so much momentum going into that show. And we talked a little bit about This American Life and how that sort of changed radio in a way. That show brought oh, yeah. so many people to the table that wouldn't have otherwise listened, and including me. I didn't even know what national public radio was until I was 24, 25. I never listened to it as a kid. My parents weren't NPR people. I had no idea what it was. And This American Life changed radio, and it's all... I mean, he has a lot of producers and editors and people generating content for him, but I mean, that's all him, right? It's a very, it's very much like they laid out the template of a sensibility for storytelling um, that I don't think we'd really heard on radio. And as a blind guy, I mean, you know, he basically became my, my version of TV, right? Where wow. you know, the, you know, he is to radio what Breaking Bad is to television. Yeah, um, Jesus. You know, that he created a new narrative pacing and sensibility. And I found, you know, like, I think what's, what's really interesting is that, um, uh, you, you know, it's really trusting story and character. And, you know, when you say, like, he's changed radio, he's changed a lot of other things, too. I mean, he's really got a talent for pulling comedians in towards a storytelling center, mm. wherein they, they prior would have been more of a joke architecture. You know, you think of Mike Birbiglia and Tignataro, he's really pulled the storytellers out of them that were totally there all along. But, you know, he, he can hear it in them and he really refines it in yeah. the show. But then on the other side, he takes somebody like me who primarily works on pages and he pushes you into performance. And he, he sort of pushes you into thinking about writing as something that are experiencing over a different medium. And when you look at the writers like David Sedaris and David Rakoff and, and Sarah Vowell, um, there's a kind of quality in their prose, I find, that seems to emerge from writing for radio. 
that they're mm. much more aware of how stories unfold over time because they're, they're delivering it in a time-sensitive medium. Whereas when you're writing on a page, you just get completely fucking lost in the weeds. You have no sense how long this thing is taking. I mean, um, so I find that, you know, he's really, he's dealt with a lot of different kinds of, of writing and found a common space that many of them share. Yeah. When you're writing yourself, when you're not when you're not writing in for radio or for storytelling, when you're writing, you know, when you were working on um, "Come On, Papa," what were the biggest issues that you had tackling that book? What, what were the the biggest monsters that you had to slay when you were writing it? Well, that's the me- that's sort of the memoir of of the first couple of years of my daughter's life and becoming a blind dad. And I thought I kind of had the blindness thing licked in the first book and, and book, and then you know. Uh, then a kid comes along and it's like, oh, it's all a problem again. It's the gift you know, that keeps you know, on giving your blindness. Yeah, it's like I'm going to lose the baby in the snow. <laughs> and um, I knew it was going to, I pitched that book before she was born. And that was a big mistake. I pitched a memoir before it had happened. I just, because we were at a, um, uh, what do you call it? Like a, a doula yeah. pre, prenatal class. Right. Somebody's basement in her house like she bred pocket dogs upstairs that were barking the whole time while we were downstairs doing heavy breathing oh jesus and um i and so what she did was she she had everybody sitting in the circle and she said um that she wanted the it was all fathers there like it was all it was all hetero couples and she said i want all the husbands here to go into a sharing circle with with all of us here and tell us what you are most afraid of And I, I'm like, there is not enough Ativan in the world to get me through the fourth wall dropping in theater, let alone this kind of thing. And so the first guy says, well, if I dig really honest, you know, I think, I think if I'm really honest, I can say that I'm most afraid of the pain my wife is going to feel. Oh, good Lord. That I won't be able to help her. And, you know, it landed in the room and there's this warm glow in the air and all the other fathers are looking at each other. I can just feel it, right? They're all like, fuck, he used the right answer. He used it up. Never right. used it. Right. <laughs> and nobody's got one now. And we go to the next guy and he's got this t-shirt on, my wife said, that just said, Canada, it's effing cold here. So Mr. Effing Cold is sitting there and he's trying to find his thing and he, he digs in and he goes... Well, if I'm really honest, I think if I'm really honest, I could say that I am most afraid that the baby will be ugly. <laughs> and and it was amazing. And it just dropped. And, <laughs> and you could realize that this guy, he felt the knife's edge of honesty and where it crosses over into the wrong answer. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah. Don't step over that line, but he just, he confused it. <laughs> Oh, it was great. And I just knew it was just going to get weirder from here, right? So I, I phoned my agent. And I'm like, I think I could do a book about becoming a dad because this is just going to get worse. Yeah. You know? Then the biggest monster was when the baby came. I don't know if you know this, but babies have six verbs. Like they, they shit, they cry, they eat. They, they You cannot make a book out of six fucking verbs when uh, that's your main character. Right, right. Um, so I stood over her a lot like, Do something! <laughs> make a memory! Yeah. There's no dialogue in this book. <laughs> <laughs> so she was your biggest monster, basically. She was the biggest monster, yeah. Right. She was, uh, it, was, it was a really hard write. It was a really hard write. But it forced me into making some interesting choices I don't think I would have made otherwise. Like I, I knew at a certain point, it's like, I got to get out of the house because this... I need to get out of the house because the reader needs to get out of this house because it's just becoming like too much baby. And so I went to the... Hmm. National Stay-at-Home Dads Convention in Kansas City. Oh, wow. Um, 
And that was its own sort of adventure. Like, who knew there was a national stay-at-home dad convention? Wow. They all get out, they all get out of the house to not be at-home dads anymore. Yeah, a couple hundred people know about it, I guess. A couple hundred dudes know about it. That's probably oh, yeah. it, I'm assuming. How many people showed yeah. up to that? Oh, a few hundred, yeah. Wow. And it was, uh, there, there was a seminar on uh, giving your daughter a hairstyle, and it was packed out, man. Like, it was, it was standing room. That is... And they had three mannequins at the front, like mannequin heads on a table. There's me and two former truck drivers. And um, <laughs> this guy is teaching us how to braid. And so I'm trying to like knot the hair and I knock the head off the table. And the guy's <laughs> like, bet she's crying now. And finally, there's like, just this revolt from the audience. And this guy's like, get to the French braid. Oh. I cannot leave unless I can do a fucking French braid. Holy like, shit. Get to the French braid. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Shit. Whoa. Wow. That seems stressful. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, because uh, my daughter was like one at this point. Right. She's going to need a French braid that bad. <laughs> no, she's not. Not at all. When you were, <laughs> when you were growing up in, in, uh, in BC, did you, did you grow up a reader and a writer? Was it something that you were interested as like, did you, were your, was your family not like readers? Really, no, no. I mean, uh, no, no, I grew up watching Three's Company too much. Right, you know, it was, right. That's what I did. I, I rewatched things that I didn't even want to watch just to wait till the next thing that I might want to watch. Right. So what was the, what was the but, first, what was the first book that you read where you were like, oh, this is, this is what good writing, is. this is why people read books. Okay. Like, do you remember that? Like that first oh, book that, that was sort of. Um, do I remember that? Wow. The book that really sort of did it. Um, well, you know, I, I would say like, you know, there were books when I was a kid that really stuck with me. I mean, I always loved those Maurice Sendak books when I was a kid and I always loved the yeah. um, sort of the nonsense stuff. And I think, you know, as I got older, as I became a teenager, there just wasn't much of that sensibility left uh, in the stuff that we were being asked to read. So I didn't really chase out books because we were just all reading like The Outsiders because we had to. Right. Um, but I remember um, when I was in university and, and you know, sort of I, I, I went there because I was losing my sight and, and because I, I sort of had to go to school and figure out something to do. And I remember reading um, Slackjaw by Jim Knipfel, which is a, a memoir. He's a Brooklyn writer. And um, no, actually, that must have been when I was like deeper into university. Oh, my timelines are getting screwed up now. But that was that was a big book for me when I encountered that book. I still remember that moment because it was his memoir about going blind, and it was so funny and wrong. Mm. And and I didn't know you could do that. And it was sort of like the book I was looking for that I didn't know I needed. Yeah. And it was like the book that told me like it is as funny as you think it is going blind. It right. Is weird. It is as punk rock as you hope it could be. Yeah. Um, I mean, his book opens with him phoning a suicide hotline. Um, and it says, you know, the woman says suicide hotline, how can I help you? And he just screams, well, that's why I phoned you. (laughs) (laughs) That's fucking hilarious. I mean, it seems like most. I was like, oh, that's a great, that's, it's just gonna, this is, this is the book I needed. Yeah. (laughs) It seems like there's a lot of writers like that have whether it's like a disability, there's this, there's this, um, uh, maudlin, you know, 
lacrimose kind of feel to their story. It has to be like a triumphant, you know, like right oh, will yeah. triumphant over this wrong. And, and but I don't get that tone with your writing. And it's maybe I don't know. It was, maybe you were inspired by right by reading this book, Slack job. But it's like your writing is unbelievably refreshing because it's. You know, you have this. You have a wonderful sense of humor about the experience, and it, and it like draw. I feel like that's why you're successful because it draws people to your story. And it, maybe there's a question in here, but is that like, did it take you? Were you always unsentimental about about losing your sight, or was there a moment where it sort of changed, and you're like, you know, what, I'm going to treat this, I'm going to treat this honestly, and I'm not going to get caught up in like the heartbreak of it. I'm going to look at this with with a different pair of eyes. You know what I mean? And- yeah. It, it's funny. I was talking about this the other day because, um, uh, you know, when I was going through losing my sight, I mean, I lost it slowly over a number of years. So it was, it was sort of like you didn't really even have a war story. It's just like you slowly right. bio crept into being a gimp. And... <laughs> You know, I was sort of hiding out in nightclubs and the and sort of the punk scene because you know you could bang around into people without using a cane and they wouldn't know any better. And whoa, um, it was camouflage. It was it was like being being in a nightclub and drunk was camouflage for being blind. And when I finally sort of started to write about it, it came from a writer I'd met up here in Canada, a guy named Brian Fawcett, and um, he'd written some books that I'd actually studied in university. And my old prof connected me with him, and. Um, He'd said, you know, write me some things for this website he was running. He's like, write me some short pieces about what it's like to be blind, but don't jam your head in your navel and tell me about your sad feelings. Yeah. Tell me what it's like to be in Ikea when you're a blind person. Great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was, that was the permission, right? It was like, it's a point of view as opposed to a subject. And that was the thing that I, I needed to be told. Because, you know, you're right. So many of these memoirs about losing your sight get, get so saccharine and so model and, and, and so poetic-y on themselves. And the triumph of the human spirit bleeds out of everything. Right, process. right. But it is inherently a state of slapstick if, you, if it's a point of view because you're, you're a resident alien on the planet. Like, you, the world didn't imagine you here. You know, if you walk into a mall as a blind person, nobody imagined you were ever coming. And so you are inherently satirical. Right. You know? And um, that's how that voice came out, because I, I was being asked to write about my point of view on the world as opposed to what happened to me. Does it happen? So sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. As, do, it, every, does something happen every day that you need to write like, oh, God, this was a fucking brilliant moment with someone who didn't know they were encount- encountering a blind person and they ha- had to struggle with negotiating it and some sort of bizarre scene happened. And I'm, I'm assuming that must happen to you all the time where you kind of laugh at yourself on the inside when someone's having trouble. Yeah. You know what I mean? Does. A little less so now because I have sort of my trap line that I follow, like places I go, things I do. I sort of keep I'm, – I'm a fairly reclusive animal. Right. But partly that's in self-defense because it is just sort of a constant – like like when you think about it, if you're the blind guy walking down the street, who's going to approach you? The people with the lowest inhibitions. Yeah. Right? Which means usually the crazy people. Kooky ones. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you get a lot of that. Um, and just – you know, because you don't know what's going on. You're constantly just sort of stepping into the middle of it. Like there was, um, I gone surfing a few summers ago for the first time and it was awesome. And I completely destroyed my leg Ugh. and, uh, this woman's helping me off the beach and I'm hobbling off and she asked what I do for a living. And, 
I said, I'm a writer. And she goes, the only thing I would have read? I said, probably not. And she, and, I, and she said, you sound familiar. Are you, are you radio? And I said, yeah, I was on This American Life. She goes, you're that guy that got lost in a hotel room as she's carrying uh, off a beach. And I get home a couple weeks later, and I'm still recovering with this leg, and I'm standing in a coffee shop, and a woman in an electric wheelchair backs onto my bad leg and parks her wheelchair there. <laughs> I mean, it's just the disabled people destroying one another, trying to find room in the world. Get out of my way, Blindy! I have it worse! And so then I took my daughter bowling. And I'm not even going to finish that. <laughs> Is there like a competition? Like, who are the most insufferable, like, members of, like, a handicapped community? Like, are the deaf, like, do deaf, like, who would win in a fight? Like, or is it someone who's confined to a wheelchair or is it someone with like, like, are there certain like demographics of, of the handicapped quote unquote world that like you find insufferable? You're like, oh God, here comes another deaf person. They're going to cry me a river because they can't hear anything. Um, like, I wonder if you're like competitive at all with other people who have, who have lost senses. What a weird question. Um... I don't know. Because I, I know a deaf guy who wants to wrestle you. <laughs> 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 which we would charge, which we would charge for a pay-per-view for. I would pay nineteen ninety-five to That's watch that. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I would say, the funny thing is like, the blind community itself is pretty divided and there's a, there can be a very mm. kind of militaristic, I mean, there could be Ayn Randian blind people basically. Right. right? And, um, they have like really big white sticks cause they don't think they should break them down cause they shouldn't be ashamed of them. And, ah. and they, I get, I get grief from, from that world. They, they find that I'm perpetuating the Mr. Magoo stereotype and, and, all right. that. and I just think that's such bullshit. Cause I think it's just like, I'm being held hostage by the boredom of my identity then. Yeah. You know? Jesus, please. You and, know, I don't, I don't need to go out and represent an entire group of people. It's not the intention. The intention is to tell you that, yes, I did get lost in a hotel room. Are those, are those that happened? Yeah. Right. <laughs> Are those the same people who, like, for children who are born without sight, and if they're able to develop, you know, treatments to bring sight back, that they are? Because I know there's a whole, like, in the deaf community, what is the university in Washington? Gal Gallaudet, I think, is like a the deaf college. Oh, I know the one you're talking about. Yeah. Um, the, yeah, yeah. They're very pro, like, don't put in, don't try to change. Like, you are a deaf person, and you don't need to have, you don't need to wear um, uh, hearing aids or have those, mm -hmm. like, the, like inner ear surgery to regain your hearing. Like, the cochlear implant. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they're, like, very militaristic is the word that you use. Like, against that, saying, like, you don't need that. Like, you're enough. And I, I, yeah, and I get that. I mean, my old partner was deaf, and, and she, I mean, that didn't work very well because the phone would ring, and, and she'd be like, <laughs> I'd be like, where's the phone? And she's like, what? <laughs> but she uh. said she would take out her hearing aids when she got home from work because they just drove her insane. And, and then we would often get in arguments because she misunderstood what I was saying. You know, right. But I, that world's very different. And I think it's because in the deaf community, I mean, they have a language and that's, that's a yeah. much more complicated identity issue. Right. Whereas blindness is really a mobility glitch mostly. Yeah. You know, I mean, we, we don't ride bikes, most of us, and we don't really give a shit about the sunset. Right. So that's not a culture, you know? Yeah. Um, 
So I, I find that the identity politics around blindness is it's just not really comparable to, to the deaf. That makes sense. In any way. Yeah. What sense was the first uh, uh, of all of your senses? What was the first sense that started like peeking ahead when you started losing your sight? Like, and it, what did that feel like? I don't know if it was your, I'm assuming it was your hearing or your touch. Like you were like, whoa, I'm, I have a spidey sense now that you maybe uh, didn't have before. That's interesting. My, my sense has been, I'm way more sensitive to smell than I ever thought I would be. And that's uh, a good and bad much thing. More powerful and right. in, inescapable than sound. Um, yeah. If you could, if you put smell to the foreground of your experience, I mean, most environments you'd be in would just be intolerable. You know, like a public bus. Um, you know, just the amount of car exhaust in the air. If that's your sense of the landscape, like if that's you looking around, is that smell? Yeah. You wonder why you're here, right? Yeah. My my hearing, I still have sort of bad punk rock hearing, so it never really got that much better. I, I, I alert to disruptions of sound, like if something is sort of off rhythm in the house or hmm. there's a sort of sound I can't identify. My wife says I do the alerted dog expression, you know, like, what's that? <laughs> um, but, you know, it's funny. The, I, I knew I was getting to a state of blindness when there was a car accident outside our window once and I didn't bother go look. And it oh, wow. felt weird to hear crunch and not turn and look at it. Like your instinct is to turn to complete the picture of the sound and I just didn't bother. And that instinct was gone. Yeah, it was gone. It was gone. That wow. And you so, said you said a, a smell is like is like feeding. I've heard you say that in an inter interview. What, what what does that mean? Like when you're surrounded by like a great smell, a smell that is really moving and wonderful. Like what it, you said, sort of like feeding, almost like eating. Well, for me, they feel like a full, like if you get a, a, an environment in which there's a smell that you have a particular nostalgia for, um, it just puts you in that place so completely in mm. a way that I find, you know, you hear songs from when you were a teenager and you get nostalgic, you it, it, it's a stronger nostalgia when there's a smell that you haven't smelled in 10 years that just suddenly is around you and you're just in that place in that time in a much more radical way, I find. Yeah. Um, if like book-wise, man, there's a memoir called Townie by Andre Dubois oh. III. Oh, 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 I know it well. God, it's an amazing book. Have I you know. Read it? Not only have I read it, Ryan, I had a handshake agreement over the phone with Andre Debuse to produce the film version with my brother of that book because no it way, really? so moved me. And I'm from a town that's similar to that town that he described. I'm from Massachusetts as well. And we had Are like... Are you doing it? No. And it is a heartbreaking... It's a heartbreaking story, story where lawyers got involved and ruined everything. And... um I've since tell me uh, tell me after our interview I have to hear that. I will story. I will I will but go go ahead go go on about that book. All I was going to say is well you know that book the way he uses smell in that book is insane. Oh fuck yeah. Yeah. He lists of smells to make environments like it was creosote and diesel exhaust and he just has this style of punctuating places as smells. Yeah. And you can tell the kind of people who live there and what they did there and uh, it's like a, a little micro universe. You know, when you smell something, you know kind of what's been going on here. It's like a story's unfolding. You know what people have been doing. Mm, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. 
so it makes the world more animated and gives it a sense of living history around you when you're in it. Are you ready for like an impossibly sentimental blind person question? Hang on a sec. Let me just uh, make sure I've got some hand sanitizer. Yeah. Take your shirt off for this one. Is there a memory that you used to have from your life that you cherish that that has since gone hazy? Oh, that's an interesting question. Uh, Yeah, the blind memory, visual memory thing. Yeah. I'll tell you, um, the strange thing about your visual memory as you progress into blindness from being a sighted person is that it's very hard to tell if what you're remembering is true anymore. Um, so like if I think about, you know, the memories of my wife's face from 20 years ago or, uh, my brothers or, or you know, my family, I like, I have pictures in my mind. I just don't know if they're right because I can't compare them to anything. Right. So it, it's sort of like I have this internal gallery of faces that are my own reference, but they may not match anything in the world as far as I know. But what's strange is a few months ago, I said to my wife, um, we were talking about uh, a kind of uh, a friend of a friend, and I said, "Do you remember? Like, he's this weird guy who worked up on the oil rigs in Alberta, and he was like, you know, three hundred pounds. And I remember his teeth were really dark. And we'd gone to his house, and it, and it's like all he had was a kitchen table and a couch and a massive big screen TV and pizza boxes everywhere. There was a lot of dope being smoked. But he had this big house because he had all this oil rig money, and it was just empty, like just this big empty suburban house." And we were talking about this, and then she said to me, you've never been to his house. I'm like, no, I definitely have. And she goes, no, we've never been there. You've, in fact, actually never met him. <laughs> and wow, I had this really vivid memory of being in his house and seeing all these things. And she said, mm, probably you were told those things. Hmm. And I realized, oh, my God, if you tell me a story, it's the same experience as if I actually was there. Because I'm not seeing it anyway. Holy shit. So I can't I'm getting Tell the difference. About things I've been told and things I've done. Right. Right. Wow. I think people have that to a degree, but I just have it to a very exact Of course. Degree. Yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. Holy shit. Hey, is the uh this is another sighted person asking a blind person a goofy question. Is the face touching thing a thing, or is that just in movies? Is that a real thing? That you I've never done it. Amazing. That's so. That, that is like kind of like an, or maybe it's just dated. But in the I movies, don't tell anybody? Because like sometimes I, I like the idea of having it in my back pocket as a thing I could do to people to make them really uncomfortable. Yeah. Right. Right. That's what I would do <laughs> all the time, and just like keep them on there way too long. And especially like if we're having lunch and my hands are covered in salt and stuff. Yeah. And, and it's like, oh, wait, can I just touch your face? Yeah. May I who's hold? Who's going to say no? Let me hold your face for like two, three minutes. As you slowly wipe your thumb dangerously close to their nostril. Yeah. And continue. Yeah. Maybe or yeah. just like your thumb just stays on their lip. Like it's yeah, almost going to. A little too long. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that sounds like that would be really fun. Uh, what is, uh, what's next? What, I know that you're, um, you're working on a pilot. Is that secret or is that a secret? It's a little, little, I'm hoping it won't be soon, but yeah, I'm I'm writing a TV pilot and, uh, I'm, I'm just finishing a a first draft of a feature for Ridley Scott's company about the military. Whoa. So set in Jordan. Yeah. Like lots of laughs in that one. Yeah. 
That I'm seems... really stretching out yeah. to find my humor in the Delta Forces. I'm assuming that's a completely different experience than writing uh, a memoir. Yeah. You know, funny enough, I mean, I have to say, I am so much more comfortable in screenwriting than I ever was in books. Well, um, Because it, it's such a natural, comfy form for a blindo. Like, you're, you're basically describing a picture nobody else can see either. So... And it's a blind yeah, yeah, right, right, and, right. Uh, uh, I just, yeah, I'm so much more comfortable in it, and it's it's so you know dialogue driven, and it's like open your ear. Yeah, and, speaks uh, to your strengths. Yeah, so it's like ironic to find myself in this world where I'm, I'm being paid to describe pictures that right. I never see. But, right. Uh, but it also helps the blow when they never get made, because what do I give a shit? I mean, I'm not going to go see it anyway. <laughs> Ryan Knighton has been my guest. Uh, he is an author. He teaches people about books and reading and writing, and he's an essayist. You can find his stuff online. Go buy his books. Go to your local bookstore and purchase them and then read them. Ryan, thank you so much. What a fucking pleasure. Oh, that was great, man. Thanks for having me. Can you, uh, can you close with like a good blind person joke? Do you know any good blind jokes? Have you picked those up in your travels? Oh, let me think if I can think of the one that I... Let me just think here for a second. I know one that's good. I haven't heard a good uh, blindy joke in a, in a long time. Uh, a lawyer, <laughs> a priest, and a rabbi are golfing one day. And in front of them, holding up their golf game, are 12 blind people that are just taking chunks out of the lawn. And they got to stand there and wait, wait, wait. And finally, they get a little frustrated and they find the, the golf course supervisor and say, can you guys kind of get these blindos to sort of move along a little bit? And uh, they're like, oh, yeah, well, see, they are actually um, some people that we invite here every week because those are firemen. Um, those are 12 firemen. And uh, there was a fire in town at an orphanage and um, they saved the, the children and uh, lost their sight in the in the blaze, and so we've given them privileges to come here and golf anytime they want. And the rabbi says that is such a beautiful story. I am going to go and raise money for to rebuild that orphanage. And the priest says I am going to go and write a sermon about selflessness and the need for more selflessness in our culture. And the lawyer says. Why aren't they playing at night? <laughs> That's a good blind person joke. That's a great blind person joke. Well done. It's act three of Reading Aloud, the heavy act. And I was inspired to have my buddy Joe read this excerpt from this book called All Souls because it is St. Patrick's Day this week and... Uh, this book is one of the great books written about the Irish-American experience. Uh, people compare this book a lot to Angela's Ashes. It, it has the same sort of weight and flavor to it, and you'll, you'll pick up on that when, when you hear this reading. It's written by Michael Patrick McDonald. He's one of nine kids. He grew up in South Boston in the uh, 70s when uh, South Boston was a real gnarly place, specifically Columbia Point, which is just a place that you don't want to be. And this book is so compelling. I read it when I was in, I don't know, I think it was 15 years ago when it came out. 
And it just blew me away. I mean, it is nonstop. It just hammers you. It is absolutely heartbreaking uh, what happens to this family and these children. And Joe, um, who's from Jamaica Plain, which is sort of a middle-class section of, of Boston, um, is one of nine kids. And he has very specific Boston roots. And I thought, oh, this would be great to have him come in and read this passage. It's really heavy. Um, and he read a, a piece um, in the very first live show I ever did in the theater in Burbank, you know, five years ago. And he was so good. And he's he brings a really nice sort of quiet weight to this piece. And, and I'm so glad that he came in. So this is Joe McIntyre reading an excerpt from the second chapter of All Souls by Michael Patrick McDonald. Uh, here's Joe. My oldest memories are of my mother crying. I don't know how old I was, but I remember looking up from the floor and seeing her sitting on the old trunk that her father had carried from Ireland when he was 18 in search of some good luck in America. She was only crying a little and tried to hide it from me when she saw that I had noticed. I climbed onto her lap and asked her why she was sad. She told me then about her baby who had died and gone to heaven. She said his name was Patrick Michael, but that it was all going to be okay now because we had someone watching over us, praying for us every day. She told me that I had taken Patrick Michael's place and that she'd switched the names around, calling me Michael Patrick, because the Irish always said it was bad luck to name a child after another who had died. She showed me the light green knit hat that someone had given Patrick. She couldn't remember who. He wore that hat home from the hospital when he was born, and he was baptized in it. It still smelled like a baby and had yellowing food stains on it. It was all we had of Patrick. There was no picture ever taken of the six-week-old baby. Throughout my life, whenever I saw her putting out very different emotions for the people around her, I have thought of my mother crying that time when she thought no one would see, and I could never really get mad at her the way that most kids do with their parents. I could never judge her or blame her for anything in our lives. After I saw her cry for Patrick Michael, I only wanted to protect her. I was born in Columbia Point Housing Project at 104 Monticello Ave on the South Boston Dorchester waterfront. Actually, I was born in a hospital across the city. But most children in Columbia Point were born around the same time I was delivered in their project apartments. Since back in the 60s, ambulances wouldn't enter the development without a police escort. Many of these children were born before the ambulances arrived, long after it was called. And many of this generation had birth defects. I was lucky. I was two weeks late, and my mother had planned ahead and arranged through Catholic charities for the other kids to be placed in foster homes during her stay in the hospital. As soon as they were placed, she called the police to pick her up. She was told she'd have to meet them a mile down the road outside Columbia Point. She didn't mind, so off she went. And it's a good thing she had the extra time to make arrangements, because when I was born, I was almost 13 pounds and had given my mother 20 hours of labor. I held the record for birth weights in Boston, and Ma always told everyone how the doctors and patients came from all parts of Beth Israel Hospital to see me in the nursery. She said I was twice the size of the other infants. And while they all cried, kicking their legs with eyes sealed, closed, I was quiet with two big spooky eyes staring around the room and observing all who had come to observe me from behind the glass window. I was my mother's ninth child with two sisters and six brothers before me, including Patrick. And we always did include Patrick in the count. 
The family had settled into Columbia Point three years before I was born. My mother was still married to Dave McDonald, but he was nowhere to be seen. According to Grandpa, Ma's father, the marriage of his oldest daughter had fulfilled everything he had expected of it. On the day of her wedding, Grandpa woke Ma up and told her to get to the market. Soon into the marriage, Dave McDonald beat my mother, fractured her skull on two occasions, and broke her ribs on another. To this day, Ma will remind you that one time she knocked out his teeth with one good kick. Dave McDonald was an entertainer like Ma. He played country western music on guitar in bar rooms around Boston. They met each other in a Valentine's Day minstrel show at the parish hall. Ma had entered the show and played her Irish accordion while her four younger sisters step danced. Ma always told us that when she first laid eyes on Dave McDonald playing Davy Crockett, she immediately remembered that she had a terrible dream about him, a nightmare about a bad marriage. Nonetheless, Ma married him at the age of 19, and before long they became a musical duo. But the good times were few. He was an alcoholic, and further along in their marriage he would disappear on his wife and kids. A womanizer, Ma called him. My older brothers and sisters don't remember seeing him around much. Occasionally they'd hear him back in the house and learn to expect the yelling and things breaking. Ma always said there was no such thing as divorcing your husband back then. You lived with whatever you married, even if it was all turning to hell. When she went to Father Murphy about the cheating and abuse, he told her, you're a Catholic, make the best of it. For her, drinking too much was one thing. Disappearing and going out with other women was another, and the beatings were bad. But not showing up for your own baby's funeral? When Ma confronted Dave McDonald about being down at the local bar while his son's tiny casket was carried through St. Thomas Church, he said that he'd seen too many buddies go down in Korea to give a shit about one baby dying. That was the official end of the marriage. Ma had already started taking care of the kids on her own, with financial help from welfare. Ma says that at the time, the welfare policy actually encouraged you not to have a man, as you could receive a stipend only if there was no man around. So when Dave McDonald had been home sometimes, Ma started to tell welfare that he wasn't there with them anymore. Which was the truth, really. He wasn't there for his kids like a real father. The family was living with cheap rent in the projects. $65 a month. The project wasn't a safe place but it was all we could afford with the $65 we got from welfare every two weeks. And with the boxes of surplus cheese, butter, and powdered milk Ma dragged home from the maintenance office, we could survive there. It was while we were living at Columbia Point that Ma realized she and her kids were surviving without any help from her husband anyway, money or anything else. She was alone when she had to shove three of her kids into a bush to hide from a shootout between two speeding cars. She was alone when she had to confront a drunk mother about her teenage son trying to strangle my sister Mary to death when she was five. She was alone when her kids had to come home with stories of being chased down and beaten for being white in a mostly black neighborhood. And she was alone when she ran through the projects, banging on neighbors' doors, frantically trying to breathe life into the mouth of her baby, already dead in her arms. Grandpa was the one Ma turned to when she did need a man and she'd have to be desperate for help because the two of them didn't get along. Grandpa always said, didn't I tell you? Or else, you made your bed, now lie in it. Ma and Grandpa had brought Patrick to the emergency room at Children's Hospital the night before his death. Patrick was having trouble breathing, and Ma thought he had a croup. Ma had no health insurance, and Medicaid was a year away. The hospital turned the baby away. 
Ma says the hospital had filled its quota for what they called charity cases and didn't need to take any more that night. They said it wasn't an emergency case. The next day, Davy, the oldest in the family, found Patrick not moving in the crib, lying still and blue. The coroner said he died of pneumonia and should have been in a hospital. Ma later asked a lawyer about suing the hospital for neglect, but the lawyer said there was no case. The hospitals weren't required to admit welfare babies with no insurance. Ma says that when you lose a baby, it's the worst feeling in the world because a baby depends on its mother for everything. And so ultimately, it's always the mother's fault. I suppose that's why she ran around with a dead baby in her arms, a baby that hadn't been allowed into a hospital in a housing project that ambulances wouldn't come to. It was her baby, her fault, and she was going to do whatever she could do as a mother, which at that point wasn't much. Oh, boy. Um, yeah. Heavy. Heavy, heavy. I'll never forget that first sentence. I mean, chapter two. My oldest memories are of my mother crying. It's like, oh, Jesus. Um, anyway, this book, if you're interested at all in in that sort of stuff, like if Angela's ashes moved you, then go pick up All Souls because it is so good. Um and it doesn't romanticize South Boston. This is not the Goodwill Hunting version of Southie. Southie for a long time was a fucking disaster. And this book really shines light on all the darkness there. And the drug abuse and the suicides and the murder. And uh, people see it as like charming Irish Catholic working class, you know, whitey bulger, gangster stuff. But uh, it was... It was a broken neighborhood, and uh, Michael Patrick McDonald, who wrote All Souls, just really is able to tell that story in a really beautiful way. And thank you to Joe McIntyre uh, for coming in and reading that passage. Uh, he's great. Um, next week is the book club. So go out and get The Whites by uh, Richard Price and be a part of the book club. Again, you can send us your thoughts uh, at at gmail.com. Also, follow us on Twitter. I'm at uh, I'm Nate Cordry. Uh, and you can also follow the show at Reading Aloud Pod on Twitter. And uh, the, all the live show updates will be there. And anytime a new show drops or there's cool photos of people reading stuff, I always put on the uh, on the Twitter. So, so follow us there. Um, thanks a lot for listening, and we'll see you next week uh, for the book club. Have a great weekend. Oh, you hit me like a hurricane. Wolf Pop is part of Midroll Media, executive produced by Adam Sachs, Matt Gorley, and Paul Shear.